Well, good morning. Good to see you all. And I'm grateful to be uh, with so many of you again, and so grateful the time that I had with some of the men this weekend and young adults last night, and had a really rich time getting to know you all and considering God's word about our words this past couple days. And I'm eager to be with you all this morning as well. So grateful for my friendship with Scott, grateful to get to know James and so many of you. These brothers are great gifts to you from the Lord. And so I wish I was here every week to benefit from the ministry of your leadership and the friendship of all of you and the ministry of all of you. Um, But I'm just here for the weekend. So if you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and chapter 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews in front of you, That's found on page 976. We'll be reading Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 7. So would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? The Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You can take your seats as we pray together. Our Father, we come to you grateful that you have spoken to us. We believe that what you say about your word is true, and so the words that we just read was your very voice to us by the power of your Spirit. And so we are also needy. We need your word to transform the way we think, the way we feel, what we value, how we live, how we speak. And so we pray that in this time together, You would do your transforming work. You would do the work deep in our hearts that only you can do. We don't have access to the capacity to change our deepest desires. We need you. And we're so grateful that you perform these miracles inside of us and in our midst and that you often do that on Sunday mornings in gatherings like this. So we're reliant on you. Please show yourself in your glory in Jesus and especially your grace. And we pray that you do this by your Spirit's power. Amen. Well, I've spent different times uh, learning about the great awakenings of the 1700s. This was a series of incredible spiritual awakenings that swept over parts of Europe and the colonies and other areas. We call these revivals. These aren't revivals that you can put in a bulletin or a schedule or a yearly church calendar ahead of time. These are revivals that only God can bring because this is about what only God can do. 
It's from God. So a year ago or so, I read Arnold Dalimore's biography of George Whitfield, and I haven't quite been the same since. It's an incredible story. Whitfield was one of the people that God used most to spread the gospel and through the spread of the gospel to transform cities and regions and areas for, the, for his glory. And so at the heart of these awakenings was preaching, and especially the preaching of George Whitfield and several others. He went from city to city, he went from town to town, and he preached to hundreds, thousands, up to 10,000 people at a time. He would often do it out in fields, meeting people where they were. Buildings couldn't contain that many people in a lot of these areas. And there were two truths at the heart of what George Whitfield preached as he went around these different cities and countries. They were justification by faith and the new birth. So justification by faith means that God justifies us or declares us righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So He accepts us not because of any good works we do, but because Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and we receive this acceptance freely by faith, empty hands of faith held out to receive. The other truth is the necessity of new birth. The new birth is often misunderstood today. It's not about turning a new leaf, as individuals or corporations might do. It's not about trying to become more spiritual in our own strength. It's actually nothing that we can do to ourselves. It's something God alone can do. It's the act when God brings us out of spiritual death into spiritual life, as the Apostle John speaks of it in 1 John. God gives us a new heart. He makes us spiritually alive. We call it the new birth because that's what Jesus called it. He was talking to one religious leader named Nicodemus, and he said that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again, unless there's a second birth, a new birth, a spiritual birth. We're born the first time physically, and Jesus says that God must cause us to be born again a second time spiritually. Another word for the new birth is regeneration. The, the new birth is about God regenerating us, giving us new life. So George Whitfield said that when he would stand in front of these crowds and unfold from God's Word these two truths, he would speak to these crowds of thousands, and this is what he would tell them. And he said that these truths made their way like lightning into the hearers' consciences. And so that was his account of what happened as he's just watching this transformation happen in front of him. He's speaking these two truths, and they make their way like lightning into the hearer's consciences by the Holy Spirit. And so here's one reason why this was such a powerful message in George Whitfield's day. Because many people had grown up thinking that they understood Christianity, but they missed the heart of it. And so as Whitfield would preach these truths that we are accepted by faith alone because of Jesus and that we must be born again. As he preached these truths, people realized they had never actually embraced this. And so Whitfield would go around saying these things and people who thought that they were Christians, even church leaders, started to realize that they were not trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation and acceptance before God and that they had not actually experienced the new birth the thing that Jesus himself said you must experience to enter the kingdom. They realized that they were not true Christians 
in other words. They weren't actually believing the gospel, and there was no inner transformation that happened. They didn't trust and know and love Jesus. So that was the 1700s, and we need the same thing today, just as every generation. There's a general sense that people think that they know what Christianity is about, but they actually often don't realize that this is part of what's at the heart of it. Many in our cultures where I'm from and here have rejected Christianity, but they've rejected not so much real Christianity, but what they think real Christianity is, which uh, real Christians would reject as well. Jesus would reject as well. I would reject as well. Um, The Christianity that many are rejecting today is not this reality. Many think of the God of the Bible as aloof, capricious. You know, if we pay our taxes in good works, He'll accept us. But the God of the Bible, the real God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is infinitely more gracious than we could ever imagine or think up on our own, more loving than we might expect. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, exists to convince us that this is true. So here's what this text teaches us about the heart of the gospel. While we were dead, God made us alive, and it's all of grace. It's all from the heart of a God of grace. So let's just walk through each of those phrases. That's the progression of thought in this text. We were dead, God made us alive, and it's all from His heart of grace. So first, we were dead. This is answering the question, why do we need the new birth? And the answer is right here in verse 1. You can look here with me. So why do we need the new birth? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this is speaking to Christians about what was true of them before God gave them a new heart. This is speaking to you if you're a believer in Jesus about what was true of you before you trusted in Jesus. This is how every single human being who has ever existed other than Jesus came into the world. So if you're newer to exploring Christianity, this this may sound somewhat strange to you, people being dead while alive. So this is referring to a spiritual death. It's saying that everyone comes into this world alive physically, but dead spiritually. We don't know God. We don't want to know God. We are, as the 1500s reformer Martin Luther said, we are curved in on ourselves. We're not curved outward toward God and others. We're curved in on ourselves, fundamentally self-oriented and selfish. And then the Apostle Paul here gives us three categories to help us understand what this really means. He said that there were three sources of influence in our lives. There's three influences that shaped and formed us, that shaped and formed what we think, what we value, how we live. They're the world and Satan and the flesh. So briefly, let's consider each of them what he says here. First, the world. This refers to a system of values. You can see the way he put it here. We walked or lived according to the course of this world or the age of this world. So the world, the various cultures within it have different values different attitudes, uh, different habits. And while there's many different cultures in the world, many different subcultures in the world, this text is making a sharp distinction between two fundamental differences between systems of values. There are value systems of the world which put us at the center, which put human beings at the center, and then there's the value system of God that puts God right at the center. 
So before someone experiences the new birth, this is saying, they're caught up in the value systems of the world that put themselves and human beings at the center. They don't put God at the center. The default inclination of the human heart is not to come into the world and think, how, how can I recognize that life is all about him? And that my greatest good is knowing him and enjoying him. That's not our default inclination, which is why all the cultures of human history have default been oriented away from the Lord and curved in on ourselves. The second influence is Satan. So Paul says next in verse 2 that we walked or lived according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's saying here that there's an invisible realm and it has an influence in our world. Many cultures in the world throughout history and around the globe today are sensitive to this reality, but many modern Western cultures are less sensitive. Uh, many modern Westerners, we often reject the reality of Satan, the reality of this invisible spiritual realm, um, and yet while rejecting Satan, there still are many in modern Western cultures that would say, yeah, this idea of Satan may not be true, but surely there is something more than what we can see. There, there is this invisible spiritual world. It's common for people to be spiritual but not religious, right? So there is an openness to these kinds of things. And so this really shouldn't be such a stretch for many to believe today. And what Paul is saying in this text is simply that this spiritual realm is not all friendly. The Bible doesn't tell us much about this, but it does say about this negative aspect, but it does say that there were many angels who rebelled against God. They are now what we call demons, and Satan is the leader of them. And Paul is saying some people are aware of this, and some people are not, but this spiritual realm is influencing human beings and cultures. The third influence is the flesh. Verse 3 says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body or flesh or sinful will and mind. So the flesh here is referring to a mindset. It's essentially our self-centered mindset. We are curved inward, we're curved away from God, and we have desires and passions that drive and control our behavior, which is why the cultures of the world are fundamentally self-oriented around humans because uh, the world's values are just reflective of the collection of individuals that make them out, right? And we are all curved inwardly here. It's interesting that um, some people don't have a problem in our culture believing in this final aspect. Um, we recognize that there are deep desires in us that we feel like they're just out of control and they're driving our behavior. And so it's helpful just to note that different cultures will have a hard time embracing one or other of these. In the first century culture, they actually would have probably, in, in the, the city of Ephesus, probably would have had a harder time embracing this idea of these sinful desires controlling behaviors, but they wouldn't have had any problem at all embracing this idea of a spiritual world that's negative out there. Uh, they were well aware of spiritual forces and powers. They were saved out of a, slave, a slavery to them in many ways. So that just gives us a humility um, from culture to culture. When, when we see these three sources of influences, we're all going to be predisposed to recognize maybe one or two of these and not others. And so this just helps us be humble and recognize that different cultures will embrace different ones of these. The Bible shows that we need to embrace all of them and learn from each other in that sense. So let's just step back and ask a question here. How could the world get this way? Why is the world this way? And this all flows from what happened early in human history. So God created humanity good. He made the world good, and he said it was very good. And then God told our first 
parents, Adam and Eve, that if they rejected him and his good commands, then they would die, and they did. They died spiritually, in a sense, right away, and they'd eventually die physically. And now everyone is born into the world spiritually dead, and that is why this world is a mess. And we're looking forward to the day when Jesus returns to set all things right and make all things new. But in between that, those two bookends of this story, here we are. And so what's the result of all this? The end of verse 3. He says, We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So this is saying that our condition is one that deserves judgment. We deserve God's wrath. And we often have trouble believing and understanding how this could be true of a good God. But think about this with me. Uh, We really do all want there to be a God of wrath. We look at the injustices of the world and we feel anger. I recently read a book on World War II and was just astonished reading story after story after story of just thousands of people just killed um, who did not deserve that from a human standpoint. Just incredible. There's no words for it all. And the people who did these things were not just misguided. They didn't need just better parenting or better upbringing, or better education. I mean, we see the, the human trafficking. We see murders of innocent people, and we want justice. And so what if God was indifferent to all of this? What if we were rightfully angered about these injustices, and God was fully aware and indifferent to it all? In the end, we really do want a God who will bring justice. And it's interesting. We do see this in our cultures, actually. Many people don't like the idea in our modern Western culture of a God who, would get, who has anger. But at the same time, they insist that if someone is sincere about the injustices of our day, they need to be angered about it. So one reason we feel this way is because we do intuitively recognize that love and wrath belong together. Righteous anger is a result of deep love. The more someone loves a victim and the more unjust the crime against that victim whom we love, the more wrath is kindled, and rightly so. If someone doesn't get angry, then it's because they're indifferent. Now, much anger is sinful, but there is a thing called righteous anger and it's motivated by love. So this shows us that when we look at some of the terrible injustices in the world and impressions today, we do want justice. We see a place for righteous anger. And so the issue then that's confronting us from this text, verse 3 here, is really this. Are we okay with God having righteous anger? And what if we are actually part of the problem? What if his anger is rightfully directed at us? Here's why Paul's writing this. So that we would be honest with ourselves. That we would recognize that we are part of the problem. But there's great news about this. The more we understand the problem, the more we'll be thrilled at the solution. That's really why Paul's writing this. He's not writing this to be a downer. His tone is still actually buoyant here because the whole point is of this text in this context is to remind Christians of what they were saved from. 
so they would be, just be thrilled at the joy of, and the privilege and the astonishing wonder of being a Christian. And so we don't want to drill into the depths of the problem here just to depress, depress us, but ultimately to encourage us. Because here's the truth. If we have a thin view of the problem, we will have a thin view of God's grace. If we think that we really aren't that bad and we drift from recognizing the realities of what we have done, what we're capable of, what we deserve, then we'll think that God's grace isn't really that great. We may still give lip service to it, we may still sing about it, we may still say it, but it won't be affecting the deep inner realities of our heart. So let's move on then to the next part. First, we were dead. Second, God made us alive. Verse 4, but God. Does anyone have that underlined in your Bible? Maybe you're not Bible writers. That's okay. But God. This is the cosmic interruption of grace. The story didn't need to move in this direction. We, this could have read, we were all by nature children and of wrath, therefore God judged us all, just like he did in Noah's day with the flood. Therefore God judged all of humanity, and that was it. But the but God signals to us something about God, that God is too gracious to let his justice have the only word. God is perfect in His justice and perfect in His grace, and He's too gracious to let His justice have the only word for us. So who is this God who interrupts the story like this? Well, let's keep reading. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. So let's pause there. These are the deep motives in the heart of God for saving human beings. God saved us because of who He is. He saved us because it's His nature to be kind. It's His nature to be merciful. And notice, His mercy is not a side note here. God is rich in mercy. Paul doesn't say, you deserve wrath, but God has some mercy. And so, you know, if you really kind of give yourself to asking hard and, and keep at this for a number of years, He might dispense some to you. No, this is saying that God is rich in mercy. This is who He is. One of my favorite authors is Thomas Goodwin from the 1600s, and he noticed that the Bible never says God is rich in wrath, but it does say He's rich in mercy. We provoke Him to wrath, the Bible says over and over, but He's rich in mercy. One pastor put it this way, at the heart of the universe is a love too great to be limited to what we deserve. And so what did God do for us? Given that this is the God who is there, what did He do? Verse 5, He made us alive. That's the new birth. That's regeneration. That's taking spiritually dead people who deserve nothing but wrath and pouring out kindness, making them alive. And think about what this means. Someone who's dead cannot make themselves alive. A dead person cannot decide to start breathing. A dead person cannot even ask for the help they need. They're not as Miracle Max put it in The Princess Bride. Have you seen this? Mostly dead, right? They're all dead. So that was us. No spiritual pulse, no responsiveness to God. In order for us to be made alive, God had to do it. We're like Jesus' friend Lazarus at the tomb, and Jesus goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And happily, he did. So if you were a Christian, this happened to you. That's what God did for you. 
Now, some of you know exactly when this happened. You can name the day, the hour, maybe even the minute that God gave you a new heart. And you realize that very instant that Jesus was a, is a greater Savior than you ever imagined him to be. He died for your sins. He rose again, and he's willing to welcome you by grace if you'll have him. Others of you may not know when this happened. For some of us, this felt like a process of coming to know Jesus, and it seemed like it took a long time. Maybe it happened when you were too young to even really remember, or you can't remember a time even not believing. The point isn't that we know exactly when the point was. The point is that there is a point. Whether or not we are able to perceive when that moment was, when we went from darkness to light, death to life, there was a moment, and God knows when it was. And it might have been imperceptible to us because it might have been a season of life where new desires and ideas were coming. But there was a moment when Jesus said, Scott, come out. James, come out. Drew, come out. Susan, come out. And we did. And so that's the good news. For me, it happened sometime when I was 11 years old. I have no idea the day or even really the month. I just know that before that year, I was spiritually dead, minding my own business, not caring about God. And then sometime after that year, uh, and then after that year, I realized I have a new heart. I have new desires. I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And I'm all, sorts, all of a sudden convicted of things I didn't even think were problems before. And I want to know God. New life. So what else happens when we're made alive? Well, we're not only made alive, but we're also raised up and seated with Christ in heaven. Look at verse 6. We, we wouldn't believe this unless it said it. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? How is it true that we are seated with Christ in heaven? Well, think about Jesus first. In fact, at the end of chapter 1, Paul has just said that Jesus was dead and he was made alive by the power of God and raised and seated above all things in the heavenly places, above all rule and authority and power. And then after it says that Jesus was dead and made alive and raised and seated, Paul says, and you were dead and were made alive and raised with him and seated in the heavenly places with him. In other words, what happened to Jesus happened to us in a unique sense. So verses 5 and 6 says that he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that means that we are right now united to Jesus in a unique way, in such a way that we have been spiritually raised from the dead and that we are spiritually seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, when it says that Jesus was seated in heaven, it doesn't mean he kind of found a chair and decided to rest for a while. It's, it's referring to him being enthroned. It's a place of authority over all things. Jesus took his rightful place as king over all creation. And this is saying that when we trust in him, we're united to him and we share in his reign, in a sense. We're united to him by faith. This, this with language refers to what we, we refer to as union with Christ. And so this is why the New Testament talks about how we'll reign with Christ forever in different places. Um, Jesus is reigning, and we're united to him. So let's consider the final phrase. We were dead, God made us alive, and finally, it's all grace. It's all from the heart of God. And it's all grace in three ways. We see that it's grace all the way back, all the way down, 
and all the way forward. So first it's grace all the way back. All the way back into the heart of God from eternity past. Our salvation is rooted in the heart of God's grace. Paul didn't say, God made us alive and then just stop. Look at verse 4. He said, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. You see, his point is not just to say, new birth, we're made alive. But he's using all this effusive language to show us that this is all grace going all the way back into the heart of God from eternity past. God's heart is overflowing with love. He rejoices in showing mercy. He enjoys being gracious to us. So this shows us not just that our salvation is greater than we may have thought, but God is greater than we think. It's also grace all the way down. At the bottom of the reason why any Christian is actually saved is grace. Our salvation is not grounded in what we do, but in what Jesus has done. So at bottom, the deepest reason why any of us are saved is not because of our own ability to obey, our own wisdom in choosing to believe, but because of God's heart of love to show grace. This is why in verse 5, Paul interjects in the middle of his thought, by grace you've been saved. Do you see that? It's kind of set apart. Um, it's, It's an interjection because it's grace all the way to the bottom. And then third, it's grace all the way forward. Why did God save us like this? I overlooked verse 7 for so many years. This is where everything's heading. This is actually kind of the logical main point of this whole section of verses 1 through 10. This is the goal of human history. Here's where it's heading. So that, so purpose, right? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Can we read that again? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's purpose in saving you is right here. So that right now, so that this afternoon, so that 10 years from now, wherever you'll be, in whatever situation in life, and so that in a bazillion years to come in the new creation, He might show you and keep showing you just how much He loves you, just how much grace He has for you. Age upon age, like wave upon wave, we will be experiencing the heart of God. Our future will be an ever-increasing perception of God's grace. It will be an ever-increasing reception of God's grace. It will be an ever-increasing enjoyment in God's grace. This is God's highest end in saving, to show himself, to display himself in his glory and especially his grace. Thomas Goodwin, who I mentioned earlier, says, of all things in God, the thing he most wants to display is his grace. Which is why in chapter 1, we are saved to the praise of his glorious grace. God is, is cre- he created the world and he saves to put his glory on display. And in particular, he loves to show his riches of mercy and grace. 
He wants to show the infinite depths of it forever. And we get to benefit. And nothing shows God's grace like two truths. Justification by faith alone and the wonder of the new birth. Grace all the way down. We were dead and he makes us alive. So how do we respond to this? Well, many of you already believe this and some of you have for decades. What do you do with this? What do you do in general when you hear things you already know? A pastor's job isn't to find new things to say every week, right? It's, It's very often reminding of what we already know. So what do we do with that? Well, the goal of sermons is not merely to learn new information, though that is a big part of it, but it's for us by God's spirit to be transformed by what we already know. Paul has known these realities that he's talking about for decades by the time he wrote this, and can you, you can just tell the thrill in his heart about the whole thing, right? He's, he does not get bored with this. He has not moved on from these realities emotionally. He's, he goes deeper in them. He's, he's clearly thrilled by it all. So this text exists to encourage Christians by telling them what happened to them or reminding them about what happened to them. So if you have trusted in Christ, this happened to you. You have been born again. And the more you understand what this means, the more that you can live in humility and joy and kindness because you have been treated so kindly and you deserve the opposite of all of it. So let's not get bored with this. If you've been a Christian for many years, don't get bored with this. If you've just become a Christian, know that this is what happened to you. You are trusting in Christ because God made you alive when you were dead. He powerfully worked in your heart because he wanted to show you the riches of his grace. This was the text that I used for my own baptism testimony. I wanted to explain what happened to me. So I read Ephesians 2. That happened to me. And any Christian can read this as their story. And what if you don't believe that this has happened to you? Well, know that it's not up to you to make this happen, and that's actually good news because it means that you are not disqualified because of how distant you've been from the Lord. You are not disqualified from the awful things you have done and the terrible things you have said and the pain that you've caused people. No matter how much you feel like God has neglected you and been aloof from you, you, you're finding that maybe that's not actually the case. Maybe you do have a God in heaven who cares. And your own perception of your worthiness is irrelevant to this. The Lord himself loves to show grace to the worst of sinners. And I'm guessing that the worst of sinners on the planet is not in this room. And even if he or she is, you're qualified. uh, Because Jesus is the great friend of sinners. And that would magnify his grace all the more, which he loves to do. So that's good news. But how does he do it? Well, he does it as we hear the good news of his grace in Jesus. So that as we hear of the wrath that we deserve being poured out on Jesus, we hear that he rose again to new life. We trust him as the one who took our wrath and rose again. As we hear this, he calls us to trust him. And then he does this work in our hearts to give us new life. And God may be doing that to you this morning. So believe trust in Jesus and rejoice in the new work that he does. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we thank you that this is reality. We thank you that we don't need to gather and try to make things up that would make us feel good and get us through another week. We thank you that there is reality for us to come to terms with and that in Jesus, this reality is deeply comforting and hope-giving. And so we pray that you would help us as we sing these next moments, as we eat lunch together, as we go into our workplace to perhaps a hard situation, that in all of these moments that you would cause us to be thrilled, even in the midst of sorrow, to have a deep joy in the reality of being justified by faith and experiencing this new birth by grace. And we look forward to these coming ages to experience seeing your grace to us in Jesus age upon age. We pray this in Jesus' name.